Coming to you pre-recorded from a cramped closet in Las Vegas, Nevada, and a New York City apartment far too close to the street. It's your favorite millennials with too much time on their hands. Welcome to the Red Team Reviews Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Red Team Reviews Podcast. I am... Yay! It feels so weird doing this. It's so weird doing this. I hope by doing that theme song, it's not, it's not a violation, because technically that's supporting the '90s show that's getting a continuation. Um, we're not like we're literally doing this, and we're talking about comic books today so that we don't scab. Um, not because we're like scared of scabbing, because we support um, the strike. Uh, I am doing this in reverse, uh, Trevor Catalano, and joining me, as always, is uh, the uh, bishop to my cable. Um, because I want you to chase me. That's not no. You can't no. <laughs> you want and to. And also chase he's me. black and and cable's white. Um <laughs> Thanks for that. <laughs> All right. You're uh, welcome. I am TJ Patrick. And so okay, so we're in this weird period now. Yeah. Where uh we can't talk about movies and TV when we're a movies and TV podcast. So uh, we TJ sent a shit ton of, or at least we're not like promoting individual titles. Like we're gonna, we have a like a little massive slate of just like fun shit that still talks about the things that everybody loves and finds a way like into fun content that isn't directly like, hey, go on Disney Plus and watch this, um, and namely. We had already established in September due to TJ's like structure of things that we were going to do a video game totally on the table uh, for the SAG after WGA strike and Dimension 20, which also on YouTube and on Dropout. And I, you know, I, I don't actually I'm not entirely sure if they do use SAG after contracts. I don't think they do. But even if they did, I think they've already met the demand. So they're like they're back on the table. Um, so totally within our bounds. And so the other things that we're allowed to kind of do if we want to talk about superheroes, if we want to talk about um, deeper content is that like we can talk about the stuff that inspired the movies and television. Um, we can talk about other video games. We can talk about literal comic books. And what was the other thing I said? And we can do YouTube content. Um, content that is like online content that is not large productions. Um, and so TJ thought of a really cool idea, which is that Trevor, who has a much deeper knowledge of the comics, is gonna, we're gonna have a big old discussion about the X-Men as we know that they're going to be adapted onto, onto the screen by an undisclosed company. Um, and so we're going to talk about the comic book arcs and the comic book inspirations and give a prescription to whatever future company is going to be producing the X-Men about how they might incorporate that into their shared universe. Is that maybe the best way I can say what we're doing today, TJ? Well, it's actually, it's more or less up to me how I want to go about it, because obviously there's different rules of thought of like how you would do this. There's either acknowledging that somebody's going to like put it in their universe or there's just ignoring that and just going like, how would I personally do uh, an X-Men trilogy that reboots everything or an X-Men show that now establishes a new live action uh, content like continuity 
Um, but yeah, essentially the point of today's episode is that Trev is going to list Trev as a diehard X-Men fan mm-hmm. that knows and cares about the actual history and actual source material for X-Men is I going do, to and it's why the last November was so frustrating. Um <laughs> <laughs> Trevor's literally going to list out his demands of what he wants, and I will do my best as an aspiring script doctor or even just a straight-up screenwriter to try and appease all of his wants and needs in script, for in, like, outline You're format. not going to. You're not going to. Um, well. And so, so, for the record, we're, like, we're recording this part now, and then TJ's going to go away. Yeah. He's going to tap me when he's, like, ready to do this and ready to actually like present something back to me. Um, so, okay. Should we just get started? Sure. Now, should we, we should know, we should know that there is a, an element. And, and first of all, like the first three X-Men movies, only one of them is even remotely like concretely based in any get one particular story arc. Um, and that's X-Men tomb. We've talked about that on that episode that, it, that, it, that, that one's, largely one of the best adaptations of the original trilogy. And then the ones that had the big headline, like terms of first class days of future past apocalypse, dark Phoenix are all just not great adaptations of the stories that inspired them. And it was very much Fox going down the line going, we got a new rebooted franchise. Let's give the people what they want. Cause we got to compete with Marvel and just the most so, baffling decisions and just, yeah. The well, <laughs> like you, it's pate, right? When they like stuff the duck full of uh food and to like to plump it up or whatever. No, pate is like a pureed meat. Um, but what is that thing? Okay. Where they like shut, uh, they fatten up the duck. Uh, that's how they did us with Hugh Jackman. They just kept sure shoving. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, they just went, he's our star, which is not going to be how I like not going to be on my list of like, you know, you said list of demands. So I'm going to call it that, even though it's not really demands. These are just I have really strong suggestions that I Mm. think for the most part you will agree with. Sure. So, okay. Uh, But anyway, the reason I brought that up and the reason I brought up old versions before is that it's like we're going to try in this version to not do days of future past. Um or I'm going to make an argument as to like how you could do it, which doesn't make it its own like X-Men colon the title of this movie. Uh, I'm going to suggest something about that that might make that easier to accomplish and more fulfilling. Um, and I'm going to suggest a few other things that might just like kind of complicate the whole the whole picture. Um, meanwhile, like I'm going to try to do uh, Apocalypse in some way. I truly I'll state this up front. I will leave it up to you if you give a rat's ass about making Gene the Phoenix. Because uh, that's technically two arcs. We always do one arc in the movies, the two movie adaptations where if Gene ever becomes a Phoenix at all, where they jump straight from she discovers her Phoenix powers into she's evil uh, or that it's too much for her. Whereas like there's years difference between discovering the Phoenix force within her and then years later becoming the Dark Phoenix. And then she was dead. One of the most notably permanently dead characters in comics um, up until very, very recently when she was revived again. Uh, she was fucking really, really dead for a very long time. 
um, in the comics. So like, I will, I will put that on the table for you, but you more or less know the details of that story. It's like an alien force that chooses Jean as a Yeah, host, they go right? to, they go to space and it chooses her because of her, her being an Omega level mutant, yeah. which I guess I'll just explain this up front. Omega level mutants are just the mutants where we can't tell what their upper limit is. So like they have a power and of the mutant kind, like some of them like overlap. There are multiple Omega level telepaths, but we don't know how strong they can get. They have not bottomed out of how strong they are. And some of those other ones are Storm, Iceman, Magneto. Um, and then a bunch of like the reality benders are Omega level mutants. Um, so like, I'll leave that on the table just from the jump. I'm not going to spend too much time on it. It's a very big, important story, but it has never been done justice. And that's largely because we've, like we talked about last November, genes never been done justice. So I'll leave it up to you whether or not you use it, but I think I'm going to give you enough materials where you don't have to. Um, so yeah, let's, let's get into it. So here are a few notable elements that I want to acknowledge before we get into some of these. And also for all other diehard comic book fans, I am also not going to go in to immense specifics with every single arc that we have here. I am giving TJ enough information to be faithful to the comics without literally like doing what writers have always done, which is just, I don't want to do that. So like, that's how much detail I'm going to go into, but I am not going to go issue to issue and be like, oh, you have to have a cliffhanger where we think Kitty Pride is dead. Because also, it's the 90s, and you needed to get people to come back issue to issue, whereas nowadays, the way that comics are marketed, they're marketed by saying, hey, here's the premise of this arc, you should follow the whole arc, instead of issue to issue, like it was in the past. So they used to do things like, essentially, cliffhanger characters dying, and then uh, an issue later, show them in the first panel not being dead. So like, there's a lot of that that I'm just omitting because I'm like, we, in the way we tell the stories now, both in the comics and in live action film adaptations or TV adaptations, we don't do that. Am I making sense? Yeah. Okay. Um, so here are some notable elements and I am more or less nudging you into a place of, <sighs> let's talk about this from the standpoint of this is going to be entering into a cinematic universe. This is going to be entering into a cinematic universe around the same time that we are then potentially getting a new Fantastic Four. And so I want to talk about the Fantastic Four X-Men Avengers kind of balance and the way that the world around them perceives them, because I think it hints at something very essential to the X-Men that needs to be acknowledged is that X-Men have always been the a source of fear for the general public. Like people the X-Men save people and people are not actually have not actually reconciled that fact. And they've started hinting that in Marvel with like the way that Wanda has been received and the way that the Sokovia Accords happened. Um, but I want to also note that like the Fantastic Four in every comic adaptation are like beloved. People love the Fantastic Four. They are celebrities. They are American heroes. Like they are viewed at the utmost like heroism, even when they're not doing their best. And so I find that an interesting thing that for you to play with is that the Avengers have this like middle ground where like some people like them, some people don't. Everybody cares about their collateral damage. They're the first 
kind of foundation of superheroes in a collective cinematic universe. And then the Fantastic Four are going to show up and potentially be the new golden boy where people are like, the Fantastic Four are the new premier heroes. We trust them. The Avengers don't, we don't need the Avengers anymore. We trust them. Oh, who are these guys? Here are these mutants who are a threat to us genetically and don't look pretty most of the time. And uh, are, you know, scary in that they're, they're just like us, but you know, you can't tell when someone's a mutant, but the Fantastic Four are just this like little celebrity group that has equally valid powers and the thing exists, but there's just this way that they've always been written where the Fantastic Four are loved and the X-Men are hated. Do you have any questions or thoughts on that? No. Okay. Um, and then the Avengers take it or leave it. You know, there's also a lot of overlap between Avengers rosters and X-Men rosters. So there's that too. Um, where like people, there's like Beast and Wolverine and Rogue was an, was an Avenger at some point and is an Avenger right now. Um, and then Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver have their potential connections if you want to use them. Um, I want to talk about something else that is true of all superheroes, but is really fucking true of the X-Men is that the X-Men die. The X-Men die a lot. And I don't know how you want to reconcile that. I will give you something that the comics use to reconcile that in an interesting way that isn't just, oh, he was never dead or, oh, it's another dimension. Like, I, I will give you an actually interesting way that's happening right now in the comics about how you want to navigate that if you want to play with the concept of a character's art being cut short and then it actually being continued through this res- resurrection situation. Um, but it's something that so is... So you're talking about the five and Krakoa? Yes. Um, like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk about Krakoa. So, like, that's on the table for you to use. But I also just, like, want to acknowledge it right here that it's, like, the X-Men die. And the X-Men die in a way that I think is not the same as, like, how Captain America dies every 15 years or so in the comics and then gets reborn. X-Men, can, X-Men die... I, I almost don't want to say easy, but X-Men die easy. Because they are constantly facing threats that are extermination level threats. It's not just, oh, Kang got the better of Hank Pym and now he's dead. It's like, there are people who are after the fucking X-Men and want to kill them. And as a result, X-Men often die. So take, take that for what it, what you will. Um, not only that, but for decades, we essentially see that the X-Men are a little bit like the Tobey Maguire quote from Spider-Man, what was it, two or three? Um, Essentially, the X-Men are a little bit, in terms of the arcs that I'm going to present to you, is that the X-Men are a little bit, uh, why can't I have what I want? The (laughs) X-Men, up until very recently, up until the Krakoan age, it's been very much, and even then, they're writing their way out of the Krakoan age right now by presenting conflicts that might ruin the whole utopia of it. Because there's been three other X-Men go live on an island arcs in the past 30 years that are similar to Krakoa, but not as they didn't commit to it as hard. It was like maybe two years and then they wrote them their way out of it. It's been like four or five years since we started in Krakoa. So, like, I want to acknowledge that there is a cycle within the X-Men of just when we think things are getting better, we are going to get bombarded with some sort of existential threat whether that's after house of m and a bunch of the mutants going away and losing their powers whether that's uh you know massacres that happen at the behest of hate crimes or one of their villains um like there are these like larger cullings of mutants there's always a new sentinel that's showing up um that is a new variety to once again 
hunt down the X-Men. There's always another hate group showing up to have conflict with the X-Men. One of their villains is always coming back to give them trouble. And it's something that can be as frustrating as it is useful in thinking about what you want out of an X-Men adaptation, where it's like, if you were to adapt this truthfully, they would always fucking lose. They'd win in the battle in the moment, but they'd have heavy casualties, and it would be hard to maintain a status quo of who's on the team, who's been there for a while. And it's been this way probably since the 90s. Um, you know, I think that there's a consistently where people didn't die as much prior to the 90s, but they died constantly. Um, and there's constantly a threat that's like that. Whereas, like, you know, I'd say for the first 20 years of X-Men comics, it was really just hate crimes and Magneto. Um, maybe one of Magneto's people would get the upper hand about something, or maybe Juggernaut was thrown in the, in the realm. Some of the crazy shit that I'm going to throw your way didn't start happening until the 90s. Are, are, are you following the general sentiment that I'm putting down here, where it's that it's like the X-Men have bad luck, and it's your choice to decide whether or not you want to incorporate that constant persecution into the way that the X-Men are here, or if you want to take a more hopeful approach, which is, or a, or I would argue a slower approach that spends a little bit more time, doesn't let as much time pass from story to story in this film or television show, so we can actually spend time with the characters before the next world-ending threat kills somebody. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. Are you writing any of this down? <laughs> I am taking notes, actually. Okay, cool. Um, great. So some other things, um, just throwing this out there. Storm has a relationship to Wakanda throwing that out there. Um, I don't know how I feel about that with, I mean, yeah, it's not, yeah, it's difficult. You, you can't have her marry into that family, but there's a world in which she can still have a connection to it. Um, or make Storm gay. I don't know. Okoye is pretty single right now. Uh, (laughs) just saying, uh, (laughs) Last thing, Hellfire Club. The thing about the Hellfire Club, and it has its own structure, and I will give you a rough sense of the structure here where it's like they have a a white queen, a white king, a black queen, and a black king. Um, Occasionally they've had a red queen. Um, And if comic people, if I'm getting that wrong, just don't freaking come for me. It's not worth it. Um, But point being, like, they have this, like, cabal of head people and sebastian shaw has typically been the black king and uh emma frost has typically been the white queen and then a bunch of other people have rotated out the other ones um the black queen has been this character celine who's not a mutant is she's actually a vampire um but the thing that i think is most useful to your to your means here is that the hellfire club at the end of the day is a business it is a whether you want to call it like an underground crime syndicate whether or not you want to call it like a slimy business it is business it is the mutants equivalent of amassing financial power to suit their own means and that's something that x-men first class got kind of wrong by making sebastian shaw and the hellfire club the villains in that case because it was more about their own personal stance on mutantum whereas like that's kind of not what the hellfire club is always about, especially because there's members of it who are not mutants. Um, there have been times when there's been no mutants on their, on their leadership and it's just been rich people. Um, there have been times when younger mutants get kind of seduced into being, uh, like, uh, the guy's sunspot, uh, 
is somebody who like comes from a wealthy family and he kind of gets roped into it occasionally. But I think for your means, it might be useful for you to view the Hellfire Club's role in all this as a business. Sort of like the, well, yeah, now I can reference it. Sort of like the Shadow Broker a little bit. Yeah, sure. Yeah. It's like they're going to, they can, they can be an antagonist, but they're, I don't think they're ever meant to. I mean, certainly there have been arcs. None of the arcs that I'm going to mention today, they are the primary antagonist. Um, except kind of one of them. Um, but at that point they had like a paramilitary group that they were using. So I don't even kind of consider it the same. Uh, but like they're kind of just another, if Magneto has the brotherhood or Xavier has the school and the hellfire club has the club, like they're just another faction in a way that I think a lot of people like to think of it just as the professor X Magneto balance where it's like, no, they're, they're on the scale too. There's a third point in this scale. In fact, there's more than three points on the scale when you think about it. Like there's also everybody who's around Apocalypse and the way that he kind of views Mutant Dumb. And and there's also these groups that are not as clean cut, like the Morlocks, who are kind of the we are not only mutants, but we've also been experimented on. We're fucking ugly. We live in the sewers of New York City and we feel outcast even by like Xavier's team because we don't present in a way that humans can accept in the way that like Cyclops and Jean can. And so like there are all these other factors to the mutant world that like in the movies we've certainly only seen. There's Magneto's side, there's Charles's side in the fir- in the original trilogy, and then in the later trilogies it's all just one. It's all just one group against like a singular antagonist and I'm like, "No, it's worth it to play with how all these people kind of balance each other, you know, and look at a fuller picture of what is the mutant world and the dynamics of passing and oppression and who gets the, the, you know, who gets the blunt end of the sword and who gets the blade when it comes to the way that mutants are persecuted, because you just can't have the story without that. Mm-hmm. Any questions, notes on that so far? That is all but one of my kind of like, here are the things you're kind of working with. Okay. Uh, you said that's all but one? All but one, yes. Okay. The last one is, and literally they just did a comic arc to make this a reality because of the way that the cinematic universe is happening, is that Kamala Khan is now a mutant. Uh, and no one knows what that means yet, but that's been established already in the movies and shows, and now it's now making its way into a retcon in the comics. Uh, where she died and came back as a mutant. So, so I'm sort of I've sort of saw, seen people kind of be I've seen pushback on that. Yeah, but I mean the point my point is like I'm encouraging you to try this within the bounds of the movies that could come up could actually be made and that's a factor. I don't know if she's going to go to the school, but she might be involved in like the larger conversation of what it means to be a mutant which is tough because they already kind of mucked up her origin with the whole they didn't do inhumans they did this like they referenced an obscure group called the clandestine and they didn't truly adapt them they just used the name and they were like light people and it's a whole thing um that i'm like oh i'm kind of glad we're just past this because i don't know what you did here i don't know if you know what you did here and then they went, oh, by the way, you're, you have a mutation. It's like literally what they did in the post credit scene. Um, so that is something I would encourage you to find a way to work with. Okay. Cool. Uh, I think we should, now that we've gotten those uh, 
broader topics done, I think I would like to know what you're thinking of for cast, what you're thinking of for characters. Sure, sure. Um, That's where I was going as well. Um, I'm going to do this from a standpoint of like, here's a few characters that I think we are both on the same page need to be done fucking justice, like need space and care in like the way that they're being done. I'm also going to talk about some villains and I'm also going to talk about some characters where like, I don't know where they kind of land because if you did certain arcs, you either need to find a way to introduce all of them or you need analogs for them that can kind of do the same work, which is why I kind of bring the Kamala Khan thing in here or open up the cinematic universe is that it's like, if you need somebody to replace like Proteus, who is a reality bender, maybe without adding an additional casting and an additional arc for a person, maybe use Wanda. I don't know. Um, Like, that's why I'm kind of opening that up for you, because when you talk about the five, it's a whole thing. Um, And also, I want to note that, like, while I'm going to do big banner, like, titled arcs um, rather than individual issues, because there's plenty of individual issues or individual, like, three three issue arcs that probably do some of the talking for what I think these characters need in order to be honored. And I just didn't do that deep. Like I tried to do research that was like, give me the 10 best arcs for rogue. And like, it didn't really come up with anything that felt it was weighty enough where it couldn't be like, okay, cool. We're going to take the idea of what that character went through, but it could probably fit into the context of this story. Um, like the character's been through this maybe a few times, or you know what? Maybe the character's been through three very disparate characterizations and we should just pick one, you know? Am I making sense there? Where like, and this is also for the listeners if they know X-Men comics, like, yeah, I'm not going to specifically point to every single arc that gets Cyclops from point A to point D, but I am going to hint at some things that I think are important for him. Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, God, I'm talking a lot. All right, here we go. And the list is long. Congratulations. Um, so we've said it time and time again. Cyclops, I personally think that if you're going to have like a trio of leads for this series, Cyclops needs to be one of them. Yeah. And I also think that like it, it should be either cast Cyclops not as a white man or you need to have a balance of people, characters who are actually like Storm. Um in similar age groups, or at least with the same amount of spotlight, so that it's not just, hey, we're bringing another white man in, Mr. Fantastic, woohoo. Um, so we've said it time and time again, Cyclops needs to be a focal point of this, because Cyclops is at the center of the mutant conflict. He has been from the moment he was recruited. Uh, Charles leaned into him as, you are the leader, I'm making you the leader. And then The interesting thing and what I will encourage you to do with Cyclops' arc is that he needs to go from Boy Scout to General to Counter General to the man that no one will cross and everyone trusts even when he's not in charge. Um, And I think you understand this based on our conversations we've had where he goes from, you're right, I am the leader and thus I'm going to shoulder all of that responsibility. And whenever team members die, it is my responsibility. I am the one looking out for mutant kind so much so that he then gets probably gets himself into some scraps where he believes in Xavier so hard that he starts butting heads with his fellow X-Men. And then 
personally, I think he needs to have a moment. And I think it's really important in his growth as a character for him to have a moment where he becomes completely disillusioned with Xavier's uh, dream. That does not necessarily mean that he needs to switch sides to Magneto. In fact, I think it's even more interesting if he becomes the third player in their dynamic, uh, where he is like, okay, I don't care about humans in the way that like Charles cares about assimilating to human culture. Magneto cares about dominating human culture, or at least like not impeding the growth of mutantum as a natural successor. And you can make Magneto more aggressive or less aggressive, depending on your adaptation with him. Cyclops is the, I don't care what humans are. I just want my people to survive. And I'm going to find a million different ways for that to manifest. And he was notably the sole leader of the X-Men around the time when after House of M, a lot of mutants got decimated. There were maybe 200 mutants left on the entire planet. And moved them out to an island made out of an asteroid in San Francisco for several years before a big thing with the X-Men like broke that all up and people lost faith in Cyclops for a little bit. But he was the undisputed like leader, but he was kind of a dictator. And there's some dynamics that I'm going to discuss here in the arcs, namely with Wolverine as kind of the, the counterpoint to him of he removes himself from that dream, but then he also becomes the kind of guy who's like, well, the new kids need to learn how to fight. They need to learn how to fight no matter what, and we're going to put them in the battle every time. And other people are like, I don't know, shouldn't they get a chance to be kids? Isn't the point of the dream that we can all live peacefully and that we are not constantly militant? And he had to learn that lesson of, you know, he's the one at the center of the fight. He is the general who's been fighting those battles for years and years and years. And then he tries to be the leader. He tries to be the one, but he's a terrible diplomat. He's actually, he's the general. And generals don't always make good leaders in terms of like the peacetime and maintaining people's happiness and health and things. They are good at protecting or attacking but they are not necessarily good at fostering the society in and of itself. And I think that's something that in the current age and where we currently are in the comics, they've kind of acknowledged, which is like, yeah, Cyclops is going to be on the front lines. Nobody's going to cross him. He knows where he stands and he's going to do what he wants to do. And people are going to let him and they respect the fuck out of him for everything he's done for mutant kind. And also he shouldn't be the president. Like that's kind of where it's landed now. And I think that that feels like an arc for him that, pays homage to every person that he's been along the way. And whether or not you have him marry Jean is up to you. Or marry Emma is up to you. I think he should probably have a relationship with both of them. Again, it's up to you. Anything else on Cyclops? Um, I don't know if I want to, because this is a thing that you, you mentioned that you don't necessarily think that he should be white. Sure. And it made me have a thought because part of me does kind of recognize why it actually might. Ooh, is he a be... Fred Hampton analog? Hmm? Is he a Fred Hampton analog? Um, that's one way you can go with it because, like, Fred Hampton certainly was its his own thing in a world with you know Malcolm and and Martin having been how they are. And there's that whole thing. We'll get to that when I talk about Charles and Magneto. So I had a thought, but because part of me does recognize, like there's something there of like 
having the quote having the white guy be the go-to leader like there is sure. commentary that you can then do with that yeah that wouldn't be the same if a non-white person was the leader cuz then you don't get to comment on our obvious history and our culture with having traditionally white leaders so here's the thing and a counterpoint to you saying that there's a lot of potential for him being white. There's also the potential of him saying some cringy, cringy ass shit um, on behalf of mutants. There's a there's a particular like scene from the beginning of the Krakoan era where they're like giving free citizenship to every mutant. And Franklin Richards, who is Reed and Sue's son, is a mutant. And he comes and basically is like, he doesn't quite say give us the boy, but he basically is like, hey, by the way, your son has free citizenship by being a mutant. If he ever wants to be with his true people, then you should come do that. And I'm not saying there's not a way to adapt around that, but like if that's said by a white guy in the wrong context, it can be really fucking cringy. So like, you know, there's stuff where it's like, yeah, for him to really come into his own and talk about his people when put on a big screen in the current political climate, like comics are one thing, but like, in the grand public where like people know what the MCU is and they will know what X-Men movies are, whether they're in the MCU or not for him to be saying stuff like that is like important to the character, but could be potentially perceived as a cringy thing. I acknowledge that. Um, one of the thought, one thought I had was remembering the origins of comics, superheroes, largely for the most part as a whole, but specifically the X-Men. And then I had the thought, well, can I make Cyclops Jewish? Oh, that also would be good. That'd be fine. Okay. That'd give him a connection if you keep the Magneto being Jewish thing. Um, or if you don't, then it's a nice little kind of nod and an Easter egg. Yeah. Right. That you can touch on. Uh, that's fair. I mean, honestly, that's two of many oppressed peoples. Um, yeah. Hell, you can make him native. Um, you can make him indigenous. <laughs> like, that'd be interesting. Um, okay, cool. Moving on. Uh, Kiki Palmer herself, Rogue. Uh, <laughs> I'm telling you, Rogue needs to be done right. We cannot have this mopey, terrified goth girl. Well, hold now, hold uh, on. Be like, Rogue has because, to be pep. All right, because all right, all right. It's not you. You're not. It's just that you're not the first person. I've heard a couple people. Yeah. Speak like this, and I want to just be clear. The goth part is not the problem. <laughs> sure. Okay. Um, true, because the goth rogue from X-Men uh, Evolution, Evolution is a, actually a great uh, version of the character. Um, but she needs to have a backbone, and she needs yeah. to be a hard hitter. And in the context of a larger cinematic universe, you can have her inherit her powers from Captain Marvel. Um and be a literal like, oh, yeah, I'm Captain. And maybe you downpower her a little bit so that's not exactly the same because the energy powers were something that came later. So Rogue doesn't actually have energy powers. She just has the super flight and speed and things like that um, and, well, and strength. Okay, so like, like, this is a genuine question that I've had for everyone that brings this up. I'm like, what does it actually need to be Captain Marvel? I don't know why I guess it, it needs doesn't. to be Captain Marvel. Well, I mean, she was Ms. Marvel at the time, and that was during the time period that I stated in our episode about Captain Marvel, where 
she was very much the the girl of the group where she got into trouble and people the boys needed to save her and those kinds of things before she came into her own in the 2010s so yes it does not have to be her it it just sh- i think it's it, like if you wanted to adapt the actual story of how rogue became an x-man it was literally the x-men heard about this mutant with this really dangerous power after that mutant had appeared in another hero's story arc which was a miss marvel arc uh about accidentally stealing her powers and that's how they kind of like fold rogue into the x-men and and rogue is you know to use D terms a rogue like rogue is not a team player to start with and something that i would find interesting about rogue is that in several instances rogue has led the x-men and has done it in her own way and so if you're finding leadership among a people to be a a theme that you want to run into rogue is an option because rogue is coming into all of this kind of late to the game with a personal like a human backstory that is its own kind of tragic like she's abandoned by her mom you can make mystique her actual mom in this if you make mystique an older character um instead of doing jennifer lawrence or just doing a, a, a faceless uh magneto uh you know minion um, if you actually make Mystique an older woman who's been at this for a while, uh, just kind of fending on her own, you can potentially make that connection. You can also make Nightcrawler the child. Um, I would need to and look so, into that history. Um, it's, I mean, they retconned it a bunch. So, like, it's not, yeah. it's, it's pretty, it only needs to be as cut and dry as Mystique is actually the parent to both of them, but they don't really acknowledge it unless they want to. It's kind of a convenience a little bit that they're related. Um, but point being, Rogue is kind of coming at this from the outside and cares about the people on a one-to-one basis. Like, it's never really clear unless we're talking about the flash forward where Rogue and Magneto have a romance and are the leaders in uh, Age of Apocalypse. Gross. Of the X-Men, which is its own thing. Uh-huh. Um, but in that context, it's more for, you know, against Apocalypse so I guess it's not pro-mutant in a way. Um, she's not coming at it from that standpoint. She's coming at it from a leading the team as this group of people standpoint. Um, and so there's one arc that I actually did read when I was younger where she leads them against another nondescript super team. Um, and it's kind of her trial at being the leader. And like there's it's fraught because she makes mistakes too. She is a flawed leader just because... She's not Cyclops. She is not a military general. She is not a tactician, but she is a leader in terms of spirit among the X-Men. Yeah. Workable. You can also look up other shit and other people might argue that it's like, that's not who Rogue is at all. And I'm like, I'm just going off my interpretation or a potential well, interpretation yeah. for the future thing. There's a ton of creative liberty when it comes to the actual role they play and their personality and like that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's what for whatever the makeup of the team needs to be for the best story that's what i'm going to do um yeah. and also are you saying the way you're laying this out are you just saying people you want in the show in general or are you saying yes. cyclops and rogue are part of the same team uh i'm just saying these are i'm just giving you material i'm okay. giving you raw material um so and I think it'll become have... clear something that I uh, that I see later. I, when I talk about arcs of stories, I think some of this will become clear. Yeah, as to uh, what I you, mean by this. 
do you have specific thoughts on team makeups? No, uh, only mm, only two of them. The first two classes, basically. Yeah, I figured as much. Yeah, that's that's the only thing. Um, okay, cool. Uh, so now, okay, let's talk about because these aren't ranked. I'm not saying Cyclops is the most important character. I'm just saying, like, let's start with like some of the really important stuff. Yeah, and then we'll get to everyone else. Um, I let's get to the Professor X Magneto thing. I'm not even going to speak towards specific backstories. If you want to find a way to like, we've talked about this on the podcast or maybe in private about like the ways in which you could make Magneto a black American um, and have his, his magnetism powers manifest in a way that is not being dragged into uh, Auschwitz. Um, Should I, should I say that? I'm sorry. Should I name a concentration camp? Is that, I never know what to do there. Um, Okay. Uh... You you don't have to, you know, there's a way for you to make his backstory work in the context of, you know, manifesting in a way that is not him being dragged into a concentration camp. Um, I'm going to leave that up to you because I think there's also a totally valid way of saying, you know what? It's comics. He ages slower. He's he's still a he's still a Holocaust survivor. Congratulations. Um, And still make it kind of set in the 20 in the the 21st century. Um, I don't personally have a problem with that. I'll let you figure that out. The thing that I actually find more important about Professor X and Magneto is that I think Charles Xavier needs to be a kind of sketchy character from the jump. Like, he's going to be a paragon in the way he speaks. Like, it's kind of that dynamic of like, Barack Obama seems like a charismatic guy and you like how he speaks. He's still drone bombed a bunch of people in Afghanistan. So, like, that's the Charles Xavier that I want. The Charles Xavier is, that is like, hey, at the end of the day, you're inspiring these kids to be better than themselves, but you're still putting them at death's door all the frickin' time. Your idea of what this is going to be is imperfect and flawed, and you are seeing so much good in these humans that it's hard sometimes to look at the destruction and think that you're right. And that's something that if you're going to focus on, I guess I should have said this in my larger dynamics segment of like focus on the team focus on the team focus on the kids and let the story and the politics of the adults playing out be just that it's that story we do not need to have james mcavoy and michael fassbender front and center in these stories for them to be meaningful impactful characters on the overall layout of the x-men does that make sense it does make sense. Uh, politics is going to be pretty much, fr- it has to be front and center with right. X-Men. Um, but yeah. And there's going to be it- probably a lot of queering of characters. Oh, yeah. Because of the place we're at right now. Like, that's just true. I think Iceman needs to, from the jump, be gay in a way that he wasn't for 50 years in the comics, 60 years in the comics. Um but they kind of looked back at some of the source material for him and went, ah, he could be gay and went with it. So anyway, uh, another thing that I think you should consider is if you make Magneto a, uh, I think no matter what, even if you make Magneto an antagonist or a straight up villain, I think you need to keep his backstory under wraps for a good amount of time. Because the whole thing about the Holocaust survivor, that was a retcon from the 90s. And 
it took an entire, like, we caught him and we're putting him on trial for all of mutantum for that story to be, like, revealed to everyone. And so there's a world in which you can do an arc with Magneto where he is defeated and, like, becomes the captive of the X-Men. They finally locked him up for good and they're responsible for keeping him that way. And then you reveal more details about his side of the story. Um, because the audience is definitely coming into this either knowing the first, the original trilogy of we're old friends, but we don't see eye to eye or the second trilogy, which is Magneto is basically the main character. And this, I think allows for a little bit more growth. Like you can start him off through the eyes of the people fighting him as well, you're wrong. And Charles is right. And then slowly unwrap that in a way that probably pays off a little bit better than Charles Xavier did more for mutants than you'll ever know. Um, Like, which is great. Thank you, Ian McKellen, for that line. But this is potentially more useful. Mm -hmm. Next up on, like, this is kind of important. Emma Frost. Again, we've talked about this. Emma is important. Because Emma, once again, represents another factor of the perspective on mutants. Emma is rich as hell and a deeply powerful mutant. Emma can have anything she wants in life. And it takes being on the X-Men teams as a member and having a relationship with Scott to really kind of turn her into a champion for mutants. Aligned with the X-Men at all. Like she starts off as someone who is totally, you know, in her rights to stay with the Hellfire Club has what she wants, will get what she wants through there. But Emma also has started her own school before. Like, Emma is a complex character where, like, if you see her on the surface, as they did in first class, as just, like, femme fatale, crystals and a telepath, and wears sexy costumes, then, sure, that's all you're going to get. But if you see her as someone who, whether, like, over time, as people chip through that cold personality exterior to get at the heart of what she wants and who she wants to be and if that changes over time as she interacts with the x-men as she interacts with scott um and slowly kind of melts away that frost to the point where she's you know um, one of the best teachers um and maybe she's a little extreme or maybe she's a little bit cocky about it um she had a team called the hellions who were equal to the young x-men team at the time uh, like there are a bunch of different potentials for Emma. And also like when we get to the Krakoan age, Emma's the business. Emma's the one who's making sure that no one can fuck with the mutants economically. So that is a, a force to be used when we're talking about the socio-political dynamics of letting mutants have their independence and their self-determination is that Emma is a key to the economics of, of all that stuff. And it's important. Yeah. Um, what, how specifically would you describe personality for her? Uh, there's a term for it. It's like, uh, I, but I'm blanking on it. It's essentially like whatever, what's the, there's like a, a, a slang term for like, she's that bitch. Like she runs, she runs the world. Um, she is cold as ice and calculating on the outside and like, off-putting because she's fucking rich and doesn't have to deal with anybody's shit. Um, and she's also uh, like also gorgeous and has means and access. And then despite all that, 
she understands her place in the world is still as a mutant and that that's where her loyalties must lie. And she'll betray, she'll betray a bitch like, but she's boss ass bitch is I guess maybe one way to describe it. Not girl boss. I think girl boss would be a misstep, but boss ass bitch is how would you describe her relationship to her economic status? Like, how does she feel about being what I assume is a millionaire? Uh, it's uh, content. So it's a there's a bit of self loathing. She's never known anything else. Uh I've never seen that from her. I think she's as self assured in that. So then, would you say that she might potentially not like other millionaires? Sure. But she's also marrying Tony Stark in the comics right now, so there's that. But we also think that it's a political marriage. Um, so there's that. Well, we obviously can't do that in this version. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Unless they do a reboot, which I would hate. Uh, okay, cool. Um, beyond that, I have mostly the first two classes that I think are important, and then some people that I just kind of think are cool. Um so let's talk about first class and what their roles can potentially be in all this. Again, do what you want with Jean. Um, Jean can unfortunately be kind of whoever you need her to be. Because uh, unless you're doing the Phoenix, there's, you know, she's kind of just. Well, oh, also, she's canonically pan. I mean, OK. And and in the Krakoan age, her Wolverine and Cyclops are poly. Um, so there's that. Uh, but yeah, she's kind of the, just, you know, to be true to the source material, she's the girl next door. And like, that makes her an honest person. That makes her somebody who is easy to help the, have the audience follow in a way that makes her sympathetic, but it doesn't make her, make her particularly unique compared to some of the other people on this list. Well, do you think unique is a priority? Maybe not. I mean, the thing is that like, Jean is just a good person and wants like, it's very rare that you ever see Jean in a position of I'm the one being the manipulative asshole because I think I'm right. Like that's not, that's not a role Jean plays and which makes it her an interesting relationship to Scott and actually plays into the whole Emma Scott Jean dynamic where it's like, I personally think that Emma is a better match for Scott um, in, in the way that Scott inherits this role and maybe need someone that is a little bit more steady and sure and less like it. We don't see, at least I've never seen in my vision of comics. Maybe there are a few arcs where this happens, where they fight. I never saw Gene and Gene and Scott tend to be a Jim and Pam about things where everyone is just like, it's inevitable. They're the ones. And I'm kind of like, but why? I'm not sure I fully understand why. And it ends up kind of being this, like, the golden boy and the golden girl have to get together. And so, like, it's interesting to talk about what their chemistry is. Because, yeah, she's she's kind of the golden girl foil to Scott. And takes on that role in a feminine way. Like, she's supporting the X-Men in a different way than Scott is. And she's just as much front and center. Honestly, if you want inspiration, I'd say go back to the X-Men Evolution version of Jean. That feels pretty accurate. Yeah, honestly, it sounds like I will have to probably at least give a modicum of like attention to X-Men Evolution for a few of these elements and characters. Yeah. 
uh, the rest of first class. Um, here's where well, okay. like no, hold on. Yeah, good. <laughs> that, that is not that is not enough for Gene because <laughs> sorry. Yeah, ask 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 your questions. That might um, help me. The way you ask questions about Emma might help me clarify. Because, but also again, she's been dead for most for like most of the X Men's history. So like maybe that's why. Because I think honestly, you mentioned that like she's just a good person. And I think in this specific context, that actually And maybe does... that's why Phoenix is interesting, because then she's corrupted? Yeah, but also, I do think they are... All the other media that's portrayed uh, Dark Phoenix storylines do a massive disservice because they just jump to it. Whereas right. the way you describe it as, like, it's there for years is much more interesting. Um to sort of have this kind of like nice she doesn't understand her relationship to her power like to have this sort of not understanding like she's conflicted about that this nice person this nice character and then have this like huge level up to like her kind of grappling with that personally like i'm the destroyer of worlds and i don't know how to deal with that and then like there comes like almost a tipping point later to the point where, like, I think you have to earn that. I don't like the whole, like, oh, a super nice girl gets, quote unquote, corrupted. Because I think that kind of robs her of her own agency within her yeah. own story. Agreed. I think it should be more of, like, it should be more of a slow burn of, like, how in control is Gene exactly? Yeah. Um, But... That's Dark Phoenix, which we've all we've both talked about. Like the best thing you can do with Dark Phoenix is just wait, just goddamn wait. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> we have to. You don't actually... have to even like. You can see it, but it can't be obvious. Right. You have to like Gene a lot first. Uh huh. And so that has to be earned. But with and that, in come... a way, that comes from a charismatic casting as well. True. But I think back to my original thing is, like, you mentioned that, like, we mentioned, like, how Gene might or might not be unique. I think, actually, with the list of people you've given me so far, this is the first actual good person. Fair. Yeah. Until we get to Kurt. (laughs) Well, yeah. But, like, Kurt in and of itself is, like, the Quasimodo thing of, like, it's a subversion. The person that looks like a demon is actually a saint. Like... Yeah, so, exactly. But Gene is. Do we want to just get to Kurt? <laughs> <laughs> uh, don't ask me that. As a former like Nightcrawler, like Nightcrawler was in my like big three for a while. Yeah, like that. Yeah, I'm horribly, horribly biased. I love Nightcrawler. Um, but with Gene, I guess. Um, Here's here's a certain way of going about it. Is there anything I may want to specifically not do with her personality or character arc? Because the way it's laid out for me right other now, other than what other than what the movies have done, no. Like you already know what not to do. Because like I have a decent amount on every character we've laid out so far, and then Gene is like a really big blank slate in terms of where I'm going to go with her. 
which I guess is fine, but it's just going to tempt me to do just, well, if I can do anything with her, I might just do everything with her then. Cause there's nothing like guiding me in any one specific direction. If that makes sense. Yeah. And I don't know if I that's feel like storm is going to pose that exact same problem. I think Storm is going to pose that exact same problem because Storm is just like kind of that inherently noble approach to things. I think depending on team makeup, if there's not a person that already does it, I I have a very specific thing in mind for Storm. Okay. Um, okay, cool. Well, then let me finish up the other three original team because they're all going to take very different routes in the way that I think of them. Yeah. Um. So I'm going to get Bobby out of the way. I think, yes, Bobby's like as cliche as it is to let a character's whole arc be about their sexuality. um, The thing about Bobby is that Bobby is the class clown. He's retconned later to be gay, but also he does disappear from the team for like 30 years. Um, He and Angel and in some extents Beast don't really come back until the 2000s um, when it's kind of that mega team where like they can shuffle whoever they want in and out of it um, where Bobby has already kind of embraced his like I'm fully ice all the time uh, ability and Beast is already transformed um, and Angel's already become Archangel and so like that's the difficult thing about Bobby is that it's like a lot of his stuff is kind of about being the kind of beast boy coming into his own kind of an arc. Like he's the class clown. He's the, he's the runt who maybe in a episode or a series of episodes has to be the one to kind of reckon with horror, the horrors of what's, what's going on. Or when everyone else is knocked down has to show just how powerful and responsible he can really be. And to me, that's as simple as Bobby really needs to be. Like, if you do him well, people will love him. Yeah. I'm getting a lot of um, Justice League Flash vibes. Yes, that's exactly who he is in the team dynamic. Especially when it comes to, like, simultaneously being the jokester and slightly maybe kind of being a little bit of the heart of the team as well. Yes. But then also when the chips are down, he's one of the low key more. He's an omega level fucking mutant. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So beast needs to be the most needs to go from, Oh, I guess I kind of like this guy to lock him up forever because Hank McCoy is a absolute piece of shit. And he has been since the 80s. Hank McCoy is the person in the dynamic where once they get to the point where they're talking about mutant cures or mutant enhancement is like the kind of guy he is the he is the guys who make Jurassic Park. In the dynamic of the mutants, he is like, oh, well, I mean, they were going to die anyway. So can I at least like experiment on their body and see what happens? And people are like, no, you can't do that, Hank. To the point where like there was a really interesting dynamic of like, oh, he was replaced by an evil version of himself from Age of Apocalypse where he became the head scientist under Apocalypse. And then two years later, they killed Dark Beast and it was just like, oh, but Hank is not that much in disagreement with him. The deviation to get to Dark Beast is not that hard. Like, Hank is a war criminal. And so it's going to be, it would be interesting to have him come from a place of like, 
I'm smart, I'm cocky, I'm fun when we're all young and kids. I don't even know if you do that in like a flashback because we'll talk about the arc arcs in and of themselves. But like Hank is his own. First of all, he just like they did a decent job in first class of like showing how he becomes the blue furball. But like he is his own worst enemy in terms of perpetuating his own destruction of his own body. And also, you know, he but you they also can use him to their advantage because he's dirty. He's dirty and he's not afraid to be dirty. In the Krakoan age, he is essentially the head of their intelligence uh, community. And they are like, Hank, do what you need to do to make sure we're secure. So he's the CIA. He's, you know, he is toppling, he is toppling organizations with no moral regard to protect the mutants. And so that's the interesting thing about him. The thought I just had is that if we're likening and I'm only doing this for Beast. I'm not going person to person. Yeah. If I'm likening first class of X-Men to Avengers 2012, Beast is the guy that bugs S.H.I.E.L.D. because what are they hiding? I would like to know. I'd like to know what they're hiding. Yeah, sure. In like the early dynamics of things. And he is he is just science with no conscience. Yeah, like straight straight logic i mean well oppenheimer's like one of the biggest things right now so right exactly (laughs) so he is he is science with no conscience um last in the team angel angel is the pretty sad boy um who obviously like they did a interesting job of hinting at his past when they nudged him into x-men last stand but like yeah that's a real dynamic where like he is similar to emma in that rich world and potentially maybe they know each other um like he lives in that rich world and he is shipped off to this school because he has fucking wings and he can't be amongst the society that he deeply wants to be a part of because of his mutant ability of the original group like if hank thinks about his mutant ability from a case of like oh i could enhance this but maybe i don't need to look as mutated warren is the get me the fuck away from my mutantness of that group to the point, but it's also like he has a very complex relationship within it. And in one of the arcs that I'm going to talk about, he gets brutalized and loses those wings. They are ripped off of him. Um, and then it takes Apocalypse to restore his wings for him to become Angel into Archangel. Um, and then from there, he ends up being just kind of a angry, dark, brooding character for many, many years. Up until recently when he has then, again, become kind of with Emma part of the financial engine of the group. Um, so like Angel is one of those characters where like, in theory, you could make him turn villain pretty early. Um, you could make him turn villain in a multitude of ways because he is just fraught with conflict about his own identity and how he fits into things and then is physically brutalized and has a reason to seek out something other than the group that allowed him to be physically brutalized. Hmm. And you personally would like... You want him to be sad boy. Uh, I mean, I don't think he needs to be sad boy. That's my shorthand. Um, but like he has anger. He has a deep amount of anger in him about the way his life has gone. He, he, he does not, he is not emotionally healthy. Um, and so like, that's just a reality. That's who he is. What is his part of, or sorry, like not that your anger is who you are, but you get what I'm saying. Right. You, what is his 
dynamic like with the team specifically? <sighs> I have never seen him be particularly. I think that he is one of the people in this group that doesn't end up getting the deeper relationships. He ends up kind of on the outs as everyone grows older. He is similar to Iceman. He was he left the team when the second class came in. Like Gene and Gene and, and Scott were kind of the only ones still around when the second and third class of X-Men came in. And he was out just living his life normal. He was living his life as normal as he possibly could be um, until he was brutalized um, in one of the events that I'm going to talk to you about. And then he like kind of went down the archangel path and got these new powers through apocalypse. So like, but when I think about who he is close to, there's not that many people. There's not that many people in the X-Men that Warren is like, I'm that person's ride or die or they're my ride or die. And so the interesting thing about it is that like to have him in this dynamic makes him kind of an outsider within the group. Hmm. Like he can be chummy with everyone. Like if they're all sitting around eating popcorn and like throwing it at each other after they finish the movie and stuff like that, like he's a part of that. But there's something about there's a wall there with him and other people. Because, and I think that's part of how he was brought up as a rich kid. Um, I think he has like some feelings about similar to Emma about like, what does it mean for me to be superior if I were a human um, and in a different class as a human, but subclass as a mutant. Like they are very similar. So I guess the real thing. But I'm his is to, physical, whereas Emma's not. I think the real thing I'm trying to get to the heart of is should that be an arc or should that be static uh i don't know because i i will say this i think he's important in the ways that i've described where like he is an agent within this as these other villains come in and as these other dynamics unfold where like he's an important part like people care about what's happened to him but i have never seen a satisfying landing for him aside from now he runs what they call x corp which is the, you know, the, the, the pharmaceutical company that they found. Um, I've never seen him land in that way. And he's also never been a major fan favorite. But I think it's important to still have him potentially in that first class uh, because of the way that the first class kind of sets the tone for the rest of everybody coming in, you know? Like, if you don't have the first class, then maybe the second class doesn't feel as, lar- as large of a contrast and doesn't get to be like... Because you know how they're like... I guess because we were both in theater departments, it makes a little bit of sense that like there was that there, that class of students that like just didn't really like each other, even though they were all kind of bonded by this thing. And the first class in some ways is like that a little bit. Like they go their separate ways in many ways. Whereas like the second class, they're fucking tight. And there was always that group of like the sophomores were tight, but the juniors were a mess. And so that's a dynamic you can play with. If you, include angel now you don't have to do you don't have to keep him i'm just saying if you're going to do the whole first class or whole first second class here's what you're working with when you're working with warren worthington the third so i don't because i don't know what all i should tell you because i like the uh, idea don't tell me. you're fine i like the idea of keeping completely mum and then just saying this is what i got uh, when we come back. Um, but, well, I guess, yeah, it's not set in stone, so it's just one of the things I'm pondering at this point. I am kind of maybe, like, 
considering like if I can't do Angel justice or if I'd want Angel to just be somebody else and not quote unquote part of the like quote unquote first class like that, then I might I might swap him for Rogue. That also opens up the fact that there's not just a group of four boys and one girl. Um, True. So like I get that. Uh I do I do get that. I wouldn't give them a perfect analog. I wouldn't subject Rogue to the things that Warren has been subject to. Um there's also a world and which something I will acknowledge in that the first class is all the same age, the second class is not. Like when they start that second class, Wolverine Logan is an adult. Amongst like some of them are teenagers, some of them are adults. Like that's the interesting thing about second class is that like they're tight, but they are a different family than these kids who are like all growing up together. Yeah. First class is like trauma bonding. Yep. Second class is found family. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Um, which lets me pivot uh, to second class. Um, Colossus is a paragon. Like, that's the thing I tried to think about, like his best arcs and everything like that. But at the end of the day, he's a paragon. Uh, he is just, this is, I'm doing what's right and standing up for the little guy. And in a way, him being kind of static in that way might be your best use of him. Okay. I mean, there are very few arcs that make him conflicted. Yeah. I would say of, of the ways you could potentially do a static character or a flat character arc, usually the way to do it is Paragon. Usually the- Yeah reason that a character doesn't necessarily Captain America. need to quote unquote grow or learn a lesson is because they're already like a good person. Yeah. Yeah. It's like the thing that the thing that Cap does in his movies is change his relationship to the world. He doesn't change who he is. And so like Colossus can certainly do that. Um change his relationship to the X-Men and to the world. But he himself is probably not going to change who he is. Um Kurt actually in a way is also a paragon. But the thing is that the things that conflict him are not the same as everyone else's. Kurt is similar to Iceman, but not in the same way that Beast Boy is uh, or the Flash is like Kurt is, again, one of those hearts of the team because Kurt is endlessly optimistic because of his faith. And I don't think I need to tell you much about Kurt's faith. Kurt Kurt is a very cut and dry character, the demon, the demon with a heart of gold, um, with a soul uh, with the purest soul. Um, and so Kurt is a very easy character if you give him the time because they never given him the time. He's always been a bat. He's always been a new team member and a dynamic. Um, if you make Kurt front and center of any story arc that involves hate crimes and people using religion to justify their persecution of mutants, Kurt is your go to character because that's what he deals with every day of looking at himself and looking at his, himself as God's creation and finding a way to still have faith in a God, in a God, in a world full of gods. He, he knows who Thor is. So like his faith is deeply a part of who he is. Um, and every story arc that's worth, worth noting about him is more or less about that or just about him being really great, a great person, a great friend. Um, he has a great relationship with Kitty pride. He has a great relationship with Logan. Um, he has a great relationship with Storm. Like, he Kurt Kurt is static in his own way, but it's a crisis of faith that he normally we all kind of know in the end that he's going to stick to his faith. He's never had a 
he's never broken his faith in my knowledge. So how do I put this? Must we do the religion? I think it's important. Because it sounds like the thing that's important is that he is a really good kid who's really empathetic and sensitive, relates to everybody, always looks on the bright side, tries his best. And I'm like, I'm with all of those things. But you're also asking an atheist to write a good Christian. I I think that one of the strongest commentaries that Cl- Chris Claremont ever brought into the X-Men is his critique of Christianity's ways that it, it talks about marginalized people through the lens of the X-Men. And Kurt is a, an incredible like piece of that puzzle. And I think that is a worthwhile story, one of the most worthwhile stories to talk about. Top 25 worthwhile stories from comics is the ways in which we have used the X-Men to call out uh, right-wing religious people. And so while I understand you not having your own access point to him, at that point I'd say just lean on the source material. Well, it's less... Because the source material does a really good job. It's less that I can't relate. It's more like... Because one thing I feel weird about is like emphasizing the one religion to make it almost seem like it's the only religion that matters. It, I have never truly felt that way in the comics. Um, and I also don't think that that's who Kurt is as a person. I don't think Kurt, Kurt is a, for all intents and purposes, a good Christian. Um, like Kurt does not view his position as a Christian at, from a place of everyone else must also come to church with me. Kurt is a, Kurt is the kind of person who obeys the law of like hell i mean you know there's a there's a world in which you could make him muslim um because like kurt is the kind of person who prays in private kurt is the kind of person who like is very adamant about his faith is very serious about his faith but he'll do it in private um but like it's gonna it's gonna affect him like it's gonna affect his mood if they're fighting against people with burning crosses in his front yard like it's gonna hurt him he might not and he's not going to go, you know, he's not going to be a American evangelical about it. He's not a church kid. He's not a church camp kid. He's a devout person. Um, Like he is a, how do I explain this? What's another character that I could use to explain this? Like, I'm agreeing with everything you're saying. I just don't know why it specifically needs only the Christianity and like nothing else. Cause like I kind of get the vibe of like Nightcrawler could be a person that's like really into the idea of a faith in general, but I don't know why it specifically has to be locked into like only Christianity. Because again, I feel like, well, I think at if that it, point we don't have time in the podcast to go into like the themes of Christianity that complement Kurt as a character, um, like the comp- concept of salvation and sacrifice. Um, you know, I am I am not a Christian, so like I'm not the kind of person to speak on that. But 
Um, I think there are some things that Kurt is seeking in his life that he did kind of, in, you know, he was born this way. I think that he sees, and, you know, I think there's a world in which Kurt gets a sympathetic hand from a Catholic priest uh, growing up in Germany or, yeah, no, I think he's Catholic. Um, growing up in Germany and then having kind of that, just like that, uh, like unexplainable religious moment in that church of like, everyone has beaten me down always. And here I'm t hearing this story about this man who would have, who would accept me and he can accept me from beyond if I put my faith in him. Um, like, I think he views it from a really pure standpoint without all the baggage. And that's why I think like Christianity specifically is important. Like you mentioned earlier, like Kurt should be front and center whenever there's like a religious kind of undertone or even overtone kind of storyline. Yeah. But like, this is kind of what I mean. I'm like, if you have a mosque blown up, I feel like, Nightcrawler would be just as broken up about yeah. that as if a sure Catholic church blew up. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, I think what I'm trying to say here is that there are specific aspects of the story of Christianity, of the story within the Bible, that he per that particularly complement the way that he sees redemption and sees his place in the world based on how he's been treated, and also. I think he's the kind of person that sees a world in which his God is a merciful and and kind being that regardless of whether or not people follow the same exact doctrine that he does would like you like I like you said. Yes, Kurt Kurt thinks that violence in any capacity from that standpoint is wrong and should be stopped. Like, I think Kurt would be rightly conflicted about the ways in which people use Christianity specifically. And I think that also to second that Christianity, if we're going to look at this from a America, this is happening in America in, you know, even though it's the Marvel universe, like it's happening in America, the dominant religious group and the religious group of the powerful people who the one that's used to persecute others is Christianity. And so to put him as a foil within that religious group to that group that is going to persecute mutants as they persecute everyone else is important. Um, so yeah, that's like, I just, I encourage you to, to work with it. Note to self. No night crawler. I'm kidding. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to say you like, like, like we are having a worthwhile conversation about this. I will say that like, I, I think it's I think I think you're going to find that it's worth it to just keep it. Um, OK, cool. Uh, what do you want to do with Storm? Because to me, I'm like, yeah, Storm's got this relationship to Africa and and she is another de facto leader within the X-Men. She has often gone on to lead other teams or like she is very much an inheritor of the dispossessed in that way. Um, she ends up leading the Morlocks when they lose their leader. Um, she is the person who they choose to go like terraform Mars because a her powers can help do that. Um, and so she has, you know, been kind of this alt leader, not like, oh, I'm replacing Cyclops, but like, I'm the alternative. Like, 
I have this kind of natural leadership capacity. I have an inherent nobility similar to Colossus. Um, but the fact that you already have ideas for Storm leads me to believe that maybe I don't have to say as much. Um, I just, this is why it kind of depends on team makeup because yeah. it might be kind of tricky to have Storm and Rogue in the same class when if if I'm writing Storm a certain way. Um, maybe maybe look up some panels where they're talking to each other. I've never actually looked into their relationship specifically. Um, it, like, there might be something there that gives you a sense of what makes them different or what makes them allies. Because like, I don't know that off the top of my head. Like one thing that has always kind of been a little fuzzy for me is like, which class is Rogue in? Is Rogue in the second She's not class? in a specific class. Okay. She is, her, her and Kitty are new additions to the second class because I'm going to get touch on this in a little bit. Um, a bunch of those characters die. Um, so they have space in the roster or they have reasons to leave the team uh, or they don't like mesh with the second team. And that's a whole thing. Uh, so I'll get to that. But like, yeah, Rogue and Kitty are inherited pieces of the team before it becomes kind of a free for all of like, we have a hundred students at the Xavier school. Um, and then it's not about like, you have equal parts, like here's the X-Men, here's the X-Force, um, here's X-Factor, here's the new mutants. And like, then it starts to deteriorate slowly after that into just a bunch of X-Teams, um, which I would also encourage if you're like to not do that. I, I personally have always kind of hated that about the X-Men is that there's a million teams and Wolverine's on all of them. Um, like sometimes it's like, oh, this is the strike team versus this is the main team or this is the young team. And I'm like, sure, that works. But like, I think we've I think we're very quickly going to learn in comic book stuff where it's like there's a difference between a team that has manifested itself separately as its own entity, like Guardians of the Galaxy and the Young Avengers. Like the Young Avengers, I think, is going to be a hard thing to pull off as much as I want it, because it's like, yeah, it's, it is just another Avengers team. Like, how do you have multiple Avengers teams in a cinematic universe? That's hard to do. So, like, I think a challenge that you're going to have to rightly examine is that, like, you can maybe have one to two teams, but that's really it. To maintain a steady cinematic universe, unless people are truly just off the roster and we don't see them for a while. Hmm. Uh, the main thing I, the main thing I'm interested in Storm, with in Storm, is kind of the part they fucked up. Because I think whenever they get Storm right, it's like, cool, that's what I imagine with Storm. I'm interested in what they fucked up with Storm, specifically in Apocalypse. Which is that Storm, you know, was a thief. Storm was, like, basically, you know, Aladdin. And the interesting thing is to think that that Storm is the same Storm that becomes Holly Berry. That becomes, you know, X-Men 97 Storm. And I like that story of, like, how do you go from thinking of survival, survival of the fittest, stealing to get by, maybe you have a small band of rogues that you trust, but other than that, it's like, you know, not maybe not necessarily believing, believing in your government, 
not trusting, you know, authority figures, et cetera, et cetera. How does, how do you take that character? And then over time, she becomes like badass second default leader, super mature, super noble, like, you know, basically mom of the group kind of aunt. Well, I guess, yeah, cool aunt. Does, I mean, does the second class have a mom figure? No, not really. Well, yeah, that's why I said, that's why I said mom. Because, <laughs> like, you know, if you're going to essentially, I don't think it's accurate necessarily, but if you're going to quote unquote say Jean is the mom of the first class, I would then assume Storm was the. I don't really like that because then that, yeah. that just is kind of gendery. Sure. I just mean, like, I guess it's. I guess it's another way of saying, like, in the five-man band dynamic, like, the heart, not in the sense of how Nightcrawler is, but in the sense of, like, the person that will look after the others in a very, like, are you hurt? Let me take care of you. Let me understand your problem because of all the people here, I'm going to care. I'm going to actually reach out. and Katara. But yeah, basically Katara. Like Sure. Yeah, 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 yeah. From Avatar. Yeah. 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 Okay, cool. Uh Logan. Uh I figure oh, you got God. that. Um <laughs> I think what's more important is Logan's relationship to the arcs is more important. Um, because we all know what's going on with him. Uh you have plenty of source material. I know you know what you you need to do. Um but you can't just not have him. Sorry. Um, no, no. I think it's enough to not have him on the team in the first class. Yes. Agreed. Well, and not, not to mention, he's a fucking adult. He can show up elsewhere, um, which he probably will do. Yeah. All right. Cool. So uh, that is technically everyone who is a longstanding character from the first cl- from the second class. Um, Kitty Pride actually comes in later. I think the thing with Kitty Pride that's really important is that she's She's young. She's the youngest X-Men to have ever been when she joins that team. Um, And she has a multitude of different arcs in a way that it's like, A, she does marry Colossus down the line, um, but she's also kind of, she leads a team currently uh, that is, what's the name of that team? Um, Essentially, she leads a team that is responsible for ferrying mutants who cannot naturally seek amnesty in Krakoa. Um, like their governments are, are, are repressing them or they're like stowed away or they're hostage or something else. Basically steals them away and then uses the country, uses the sovereign nation of Krakoa, uh, uses their like ability as a nation on the world stage to not get those people extradited. Um, and she has led her own teams. She's been a part of the Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, Kitty Pride is just like charisma is her highest stat. And she also like, as she grows, she starts off from being kind of this point of like, I'm young and I'm here to have fun. And like, I'm this peppy young girl. And then now, God, I'm faced with similar to many X-Men as they grow older. I am faced with atrocities. I have a place in this 
overall scheme of things. Kitty is the actual person who goes back in time in Days of Future Past. And that's really kind of the the jump point for her because her future self, her adult self, who's a little bit more serious, kind of takes the reins in that moment and helps guide the team to solve the problem. Um, and like Kitty Pride as an adult is still spunky, is still uh, that same kind of charisma. But she understands the weight of her responsibilities and she knows how to operate outside the rules. Am I explaining this right? Kitty Pride is so big that it's hard to narrow her down. Um, but she's really important. The energy I get, and it's a very specific energy, is when you're a kid and you go to the family reunion, like biannually or like, you know, every couple of years, like so not often, but like often enough to where there's one cousin who's cool, who's awesome, who's weird just like you, who, you know, doesn't really give a fuck about, like, the other family drama the same way you do, is not in the midst of things, but, like, maybe off to the side, and, like, you get to know each other But I also want to make clear, I also want to make clear that, like, she is, like, conventionally feminine, and, like... Well, yeah. Again, X-Men Evolution is a good template. Um, So, like, yeah, I think she's, like, fully capable of, like, being a nerd about things, but, like, she still is, you know, conventionally, like, wants to see the popular movie and wants to go have, like, the classic, you know, teenage experience and things like that. Like, that is still also a part of Kitty Pride. She just also, underneath all that, is a cool fucking person. Well, yeah, I was saying, like, you know, when you're young and you're kind of like, I'm only here for other kids at the family reunion, like, and you're the... Yeah. You see Kitty and you bond with her over the years and then you see each other as adults and you realize like, holy shit, like, I thought you were cool back then. Like, you grew up to like be like a cool fucking person. Right. Um, And it's kind of like seeing that growth in like small chunks over the years. Yeah. She's the popular girl who like was always kind despite being popular and then just grew up and became like a like campaign manager for like the coolest, most progressive person on the planet. Um, She's she's AOC. In a way. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's not a bad description. No. Kitty Pride AOC is kind of a nice, nice, nice tangent. Um. Kitty can be at the center of a lot of stories in a way that's like really fulfilling. Whether or not she's like originally written in that same place. She also disappeared for many years and half the reason she ended up on the Guardians of the Galaxy is because she used her phasing powers to essentially like take a giant missile from hitting the earth, phase it through the earth and then got stuck in the middle of it and couldn't phase out of it without dying in space. Um, so she disappeared for many years. Uh, so and if you want her to have a relationship with Chris Pratt, no, you got to figure that out. <laughs> <laughs> their relationship is actually very nice and a good foil to the Colossus relationship where Star-Lord does bring out some of her like like Colossus certainly makes her a little bit more serious just because that's who he is and Star-Lord gets to play up the kind of like playfulness in her playful I think that's a really great to, way to describe it she's incredibly playful um, so yeah uh, who else to talk about? Uh, but like, Mystique. is Kitty not part of second class for you? Kitty is an addition to second class. Like, second class is still ongoing, and they've lost some people, and they add her. So, like, let's okay. 
classes are one thing. She's a transfer student. Classes are one thing. Generations are now an additional thing. So she's third generation. No, uh, I guess. Sure. Yeah. I'm trying to think of it like if I went. There is a third class and there's a whole story about that. If I went about it in a way that like one season or one movie, quote unquote, is first class and the second movie is second class, third movie. Yeah. Almost as if you did it like Harry Potter. What what I'm saying is that like uh, Kitty is like there for the second movie, but maybe not on the actual team. Sure. You could have it that way. Okay. That's one way to look at it. I just, I basically want to know if I need to start doing, if I need to do stuff with like Kitty Wolverine, Kitty there's Storm, a world in which Kitty Nightcrawler, you... Kitty, you know, like, like okay. that. So, so there's a world in which you could just bypass that dynamic and just put her in the second class. Same thing with Rogue. Well, I mean, Kitty you could, and Rogue, a- you could absolutely do that. No one would bat an eye. Kitty Rogue Jubilee are kind of like the three that's like, Jubilee, I would say, solidly is beyond that. Solidly beyond that group. Like, fourth class. I just mean in the sense of, like, young girl can potentially be the point of view um, and might also be the youngest of whatever class she's on. And I believe that it's actually, that's functionally what she became. Like, I think functionally, that's part of why Kitty Pride exists in the comics at the time that she was written into it is because they lacked a point of view character. Yeah. For kids. Yes. So, yes, absolutely could be that. Um, three other people I'm going to mention. Basically, because, Kitty is Kamala Khan. Yes. Uh, three other people I'm going to mention uh, who were a part of the second class because the second class's entire gimmick was no one was from America. Um, because Kurt's from Germany, Storm is from Egypt. Uh, Wolverine from Canada, Colossus from Russia, um, is that they also had Sunfire, who is from Japan, uh, whose powers are fire. They had Thunderbird. I guess he is from America. He's Native American. Um, his powers are very racist. Um, and then you have, uh, and then um, Banshee, who's from uh, Ireland or Scotland, I forget, who is the one from the character. I'm sure from it's the Ireland. Uh, yeah. So he's very Irish. Um, Banshee eventually does leave the team and join uh, Emma in that team, the team that they train, where he dies. He does end up dying on that team. Um, And then he's dead for a long period of time. They don't really resurrect him. Um, A lot of people like him. He's not essential. Sunfire eventually becomes a Herald of Apocalypse at one point. He's kind of very much, I think he leaves the team because he's just kind of this prideful guy. Um, He's very like the Japanese stereotype of like, that kind of a loner character. Um, I forget exactly why he leaves, but it has, like he has a lot of like family conflict. You don't have to use him if you don't want. He is his own kind of brand of like, eh, that's kind of a sidetrack if we use that character. And then Thunderbird famously dies. Uh, famously dies in one of their very early missions, which sucks, but we don't really have a lot on him as a character beyond Native American stereotypes because he dies so quickly. His brother Warpath also has the same powers as him and eventually joins the team uh, and gets a little bit more of a chip on his shoulder, but it's largely his whole thing revolves around the fact that the X-Men let his brother die. So, like, those are people that are a part of that second class that, like, don't make it into the G- like the deep roster, but we're there just for the sake of talking about the story. Okay. 
questions? So, hmm. Would you want Thunderbird to actually be a main part of that? I don't know how I feel about him, so. If it was. I don't know how I feel about him. If it was not. Again, the most famous thing he ever did was die. True, but I'm saying, like, this is effectively our chance to be like, this is our version. So it's kind of like we have a chance to maybe address things that, excuse me, were racist, were stereotypical, and were just sucky things to do. Like having I, ent- I welcome you to I welcome you to try it. I don't know who he is. No, but I'm saying so, do you want to learn who he is, or are you fine just because you don't know who he is, you you're I am fine, fine either like, way. Okay. I'm fine either way. Hmm. You are welcome to incorporate the Proud Star family, which is their family name. Also Warpath. Yeah, Warpath is a younger brother. No, but like Warpath was featured in uh the in the like everybody dies at the top of the movie in uh Days of Future Past. That's the only time he's been he's the guy with like two knives and is just really athletic. And he's like he has like tracker hunter abilities. And Thunderbird is basically the same. Um, so up to you. If you find a place for him, go for it. Hmm. Would it be too far with any of these characters? Not obviously not the ones that everyone fucking knows, but I mean, when we start to get into like tertiary characters, do you think it is blasphemous to just go, I'm going to take this character apart and rebuild them from the ground up to basically be an OC. Um, if you're going to do it with anybody, Thunderbird is certainly viable. Uh, and this like goes for like anyone. That. Like, it goes for, obviously, I'm not going to fucking do that with Wolverine, but, like, again, like, C-tier, like, D-tier, like... We haven't gotten to the arcs themselves, so maybe that'll answer your question. All right. Cool, because we're spending a grand amount of time on character. Well, I mean, um, it's the it's the heart which, of what you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, Miss uh, Mystique, uh, I think Mystique should be in that same camp of like one of the adults that we don't fully understand until we get a moment with her. Um, again, I actually think that X Men Evolution does a good job at Mystique, um, and I think Mystique should also be paired with the character Destiny, who is her lesbian lover. Uh, who Destiny is has a contentious relationship with the X-Men. She's never quite a part of the Brotherhood, um, but she is absolutely like Mystique's wife. Um, so they show she kind of just gets lumped in with the villains, but she is clairvoyant. She is perfectly clairvoyant, um, and she's kind of a quieter character. Um, she in, in the way that like a clairvoyant character has that sort of emotional removal from the current reality because they know the future. Like, Destiny is, the archetypal is that way. Um, at least as far as what I've seen about her. She was also dead for a large time in the comics. Um, and there's a whole thing about, like, oh, hey, we're not allowed to resurrect clairvoyance the Krakoan era. And then Mystique secretly does it, because she wants her wife back. Um, that's kind of their only arc. But I think that Destiny makes an interesting foil to Mystique. Because Mystique is very, like, in the world and deceiving and getting what she wants. Whereas, like, Destiny is knows what's going to happen and has that own weight of things on her. Um, Destiny is potentially a more static character. 
Okay. All right. Um, at this point, I'm going to kind of run through some other characters that are interesting. Um, but at this point, you have so many characters. And if you were to just work with the confines of these characters, plus a few more, I think you'd actually be able to do everything that you want to do. Because, like, there are cool characters who are from the 4th, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th generations of mutants. And some of them get a spotlight, kind of. But, like, not really. Like, you have to go to tertiary books to see them play out in that way. Um, Same thing goes with, like, anybody who's in the Brotherhood of Mutants. Like, most of them don't make an impact here. And we are not including Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver in all of this. So... Or at least, I mean, you can, I guess, if that becomes convenient for you. Um, like, that's a whole thing where a lot of these characters can be thrown in there. But we've also criticized the X-Men movies for just throwing characters in there. I think if you really just did focus on all these people, you would have all the necessary parts to do what you want to do. Plus a few of the other people I'm going to mention here. Make sense? Yeah. Okay. I think you should consider thinking about the Morlocks. Again, the Morlocks are the ugly uh like not socially acceptable and kind of they even have like gross mutations like marrow is a bone based uh not to be confused with spike because spike was an original character for the x-men evolution uh marrow is a bone based uh like character not a hero i wouldn't say but not a villain either um who just like painfully grows bones out of her skin that she uses as weapons um there are people with like you know acid abilities and things like that um they have a wide cast of, of potential powers. Um, Callisto is their leader. I forget Callisto's um, powers, but Callisto is like one of those kind of similar to Storm. You could have Callisto be kind of that person that they meet that kind of explains the Morlock standpoint uh, of like, hey, here's who we are. And I'm the leader. And like, while I look socially acceptable, I'm, you know, my powers are not. And I'm going to protect my people kind of thing. Um, and Callisto gets a new kind of a relationship uh and also callisto is not just talking to the x-men is also talking to the hellfire club blah blah like is the representative for the morlocks within this stage of things um but i think the morlocks for a plot that i'm going to pitch you is are important um moira mctaggart is not just the romance of charles xavier anymore they retconned her it's actually pretty interesting moira is a mutant where every time she dies her powers are so powerful that she essentially resets the timeline. So Moira is technically on her 10th life in the one that we see in the current canon and in other versions she is, and she has tried multitude of different ways to essentially help mutants liberate themselves. And this is just the most recent attempt. Um, in the past, she was like a paragon uh, or like a, 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 a paramour of, apocalypse in one version she was like the most powerful mutant ever um her but her only power is that when she dies she starts the she starts her life over um and that's an interesting thing because it's actually once people found out that that's who she was they actually like started exiling her because like the potential for her to fuck with a good reality aka krakoa is too volatile um and she's also done like a lot of betraying and things like that. So she's now a more complex character than just, oh, hey, this is Charles's scientist girlfriend. Um, can work with her, cannot work with her. Her son is also Proteus, who is a uh, 
omega level reality bending mutant. Um, if you choose to go through the Messiah complex storyline, you will have to have Bishop and you will have to have Cable. They are deeply important to that story. Uh, Bishop, the most I can kind of say is that he is from an alternate future. Uh, he has the M tattoo on his uh, on his eye, uh, where he's from a future where mutants were hunted down and and uh, in exile in a post apocalyptic version. There's not too much you need to know about it, um, particularly, but he is the kind of guy who's always coming from at this from a point of nihilism where it's like, not nihilism. He's going to do what he needs to do to prevent his future from happening, but he doesn't care who he hurts to do that. So if he, if he has to shoot Charles Xavier in the head to make that happen, he'll do it. Um, likewise, when I explain the concept of Messiah complex, he is, um, kind of an antagonist in that way because he sees that plot line as going to manifest his, his future, uh, cable, not much to say about him. He is, uh, you know, of the Summers family got infected by a te- techno virus that was meant to uh, kill mutants that infects him and makes him slowly turn into more machine over time. It's comics um, and is very much a product of the 90s as like a battle hardened, um, you know, radicalizes young kids who are disillusioned with the current world because he's fighting a all out fucking war to prevent his future as well. Bishop and Cable are kind of compliments to each other. Um, in that they both have different perspectives on how to prevent the future because they come from two very different but very similar futures at the same time. They don't know each other from the same future, and yet they both experience post-apocalyptic stuff in very similar ways. Um, what else is there? Uh, and then, yeah, uh, some important people in the Krakoan era, if you want to go with that, um, you're going to need to figure out who Forge and Sage are. Forge is a mutant who can literally make anything. He is a G a, a like impossible level inventor. Uh, and he can do things out of, he can make it bioorganic. He can make it technological. He's perfect at inventing things. Um, Sage is just another one of those telepaths, but Sage actually manages the, uh, the portals that get people on and off Krakoa. Um, you will need Cypher who can speak any language, including alien languages or telepathic languages. Um, he's the one who talks to the living Island of Krakoa. Um, and then the five are Egg, who creates the Egg Proteus, who who uh, essentially like crosses the soul from one reality to the other. Hope, who like gives them all a power boost, um, who is the mutant messiah, by the way. Uh, Tempest speeds up the process so they get to the age where they died at. Um, and uh, Elixir is like the one who makes sure their body is biochemically healthy because Elixir's power is um, like essentially he is a perfect healer. Um, he can he can make biogen biogenesis. Um, Elixir is also just a really cool character in and of himself. I really like him. I've liked every arc that he's been in. He is also, um, you know, he's kind of an interesting counter if you want to pair him with Rogue with like, I have a death touch. I have a healing touch. But also my healing touch can make you get cancer. Like it can be a weapon as well. Um, again, Proteus could be a villain before he turns good um, because, again, he's a reality bending mutant. Fucking dangerous. Um, egg is just kind of a dude, like for a while they thought he just, they called him gold balls cause they thought he just shot gold balls out and then they retconned his ability to be eggs. Um, Tempest is a background character, just can control time. Um, in terms of villains, uh, Stryker should not be a government agent and should be a reverend. 
uh, that'll come up in one of the arcs. And uh, he eventually gets so radical that he leads a hate, a hate group named the purifiers. Um, There's also Orcus, which is the technological hate group. Uh, They are a bunch of Tony Stark level scientists who essentially are the modern equivalent to the people who make the Sentinels. Basically, like there's the Trask group that Bolivar Trask, Peter Dinklage played that came up with them. And then in the modern day, Orcus has kind of like gone, okay, well, let's take their technology and carry it forward. And they are very much human supremacists like human technology will allow us to surpass the mutants and let them be extinct. And we will carry on because we are technologically advanced. Um, There's nobody who's really important within their thing. Like they have a leader who has a name. There's nothing important from the deep lore because they're relatively new, but they're really interesting and they're worth a try. They're kind of the biggest threat to Krakoa. I know I keep going back to Krakoa and I'm sorry. Um, I just think it's a really cool storyline. I think you could use Apocalypse. Uh, there's a few ways you could use him and I'll get into that, that aren't, that are similar to the way he was in the, the movie, but like just better rounded and not as flat. Um, because apocalypse at the end of the day is quote unquote, the first mutant. Um, he is effectively immortal and effectively like develops powers as he gets older to the point where, you know, he eventually became super strong. Uh, I don't know if he's super fast, but he's like super humanly fast. Um, energy blasts, like, uh, tell, like, um, telepathic, like he's got all those things. Um, he doesn't need to like absorb other people's powers like he did in the movie, um, or take a new body like he did in the mutiny movie. That's not a thing. He doesn't need that. Um, the thing that's interesting about him is not so much his power so much as his philosophy, where it's he, he is the first mutant and sees mutants as the, inheritors of the earth similar to magneto but he abides by darwinism it's like survival of the fittest if your mutant power is not enough to keep you here and not enough to keep you a part of my large growing army of of people then you deserve to die um that is the interesting thing about uh, apocalypse it's not some sort of world domination i am super powerful because of my powers it is totally a philosophy thing um mr sinister was hinted at in logan the Essex Corporation is his company. He made himself a mutant. His whole thing has been retconned a bunch of times, but essentially he is. Um, and if you don't know who this guy looks like, you should look him up. Um, he is a geneticist and he, I believe, basically altered his own genetics to make himself a mutant. But he is similar to Beast, the experimentation guy. He is the I'm going to put you under a microscope and cut you the fuck open to figure out how you tick guy. Um, and that's going to be important for one of the story arcs that I talk about. And I think he's an interesting villain because also he's very interested in cloning himself. He's the kind of villain where rather than having henchmen, he just cloned a bunch of subservient versions of himself, which occasionally usurp him, um, and just take his place because they are still him. Uh, and so he like in the, in the, um, the arc of, uh, whatchamacallit, um, Secret Wars, the more recent one, where Doctor Doom remakes the world. He basically gets his own little island that's just populated by him. Like, he is an egomaniac geneticist, which I think could be really interesting. Um, You can throw the Sentinels in there. They're always a factor. There's a few, like, big Sentinels that have names. Like, there's one named Nimrod, who is, like, an artificially intelligent uh, Sentinel that can kind of, like, rules over the rest of them. Um, sometimes he's taken human form. Sometimes he's taken sentinel form. Um, 
There's a uh, onslaught, which is essentially the repressed negative feelings of Charles Xavier becoming its own being. And I'll explain what that arc actually looks like. Um, Cause it was a kind of a crossover arc with onslaught. Um, and then there's Quentin choir who actually is an X-Man. I'm putting him in the antagonist because he is essentially a punk who's in it for his own gain. Um, he is a Omega level telepath and telekinetic. Um, he can kind of manifest psionic weapons. Um, he literally has pink hair in like a Mohawk cut. Um, and he is the kind of person who shows up and kind of undermines the overall mission because he's just like, fuck humans. We're better than them. And I'm going to make a fool out of everyone. Um, I'm not interested in killing anybody. I'm super intelligent. His code name is kid Omega. Um, he's like, I'm super intelligent. I'm a crazy, powerful telepath. Um, I'm just going to fuck up. I'm going to, I'm going to approach this from like a punk kid way of approaching everything. Um, if that makes sense, like he's an, an interesting antagonist within the dynamic of things. And sometimes he's also their ally. Um, okay. Hot damn. We did that for a long time. This is a long episode. Um, what else do you need to know? Or are there characters that you thought I'd mention that I didn't? Uh, well, it, I would be remiss to not at least name drop uh, Gambit because Rogue's here. Oh, sure. I don't really personally care about Gambit that much. He's got this whole history with the Thieves Guild, and he is a smooth-talking Cajun man. Um, potentially bisexual. Haven't confirmed it yet. Uh, to me, I don't find well, Gambit that interesting. Well, in my show, he ain't going to be straight. <laughs> yeah, I I really don't find Gambit personally that interesting, which is why I didn't really list him. Yes, he has that relationship with Rogue, and it very much is kind of a Bonnie and Clyde relationship where they're kind of both outlaw-y whenever she's with him. He's a bad influence on her, but occasionally he just kind of goes with the flow and joins the team. Um, and he's just a fucking cool character design at the end of the day with his ability to put energy into physical objects and throw them. Um Gambit's cool. Uh, that's really, to me, the most effect, the most important aspect of Gambit is that he's just fucking cool. Um, and he can also be an antagonist. The Thieves Guild can be an antagonist uh, if you wanted to use one. Um, but they're not really all that big. Uh, and they really only kind of operate in Gambit's sphere of influence. Um, anybody else? I mean, there are the new mutants, which includes like uh, Magic, who's Colossus's sister, who has like demon stuff associated with her. Uh, there's Cannonball, who's part of the Guthrie family that are like all the kids are mutants. Um, there's Sunspot, the, another rich kid. Uh, there's Wolfsbane, uh, who is, uh, you know, uh, what's her face? Um, Maisie Williams in the movie. Uh, there's Moonstar, who is another native character. Uh there's armor who can do like projected armor things. Like there's a lot of small cool characters that you could go down the rabbit hole on. And I'm sure that Marvel will probably be like, Oh, Hey, writer of the movie, who do you want to include? And they'll be like, I love armor. We're using armor. And I'm like, okay, fine. Um, but like when it comes to like, we have to start this from scratch. It may not be worth your time to go down all these paths of all these characters yeah. because they don't really, it always comes back to this group of people. At the end of the day, um, not to put them in the group, but in terms of like when it might make the most sense chron chronologically speaking for them to maybe show up, Dazzler. Oh yeah, actually, I think Dazzler would be a great thing. Um, Dazzler is uh, you know, 
uh, like Dazzler is an interesting factor because she started off as a performer using her powers and then got found out as a mutant and joined the X-Men. Um, and she has a few arcs where she tries to kind of like hide and rebirth herself as a performer. She also becomes Thor at one point. Um, Dazzler's a cool, <laughs> relatively static character. Yeah, that's a cool arc. It's very fun. Um, it's so fucking random. <laughs> yeah. Dazzler's fun. God damn it, um, Marvel. <laughs> there's also a girl named Mercury, where, as you can kind of predict, she is made of Mercury. Um, she's like a cheerleader uh, made of Mercury. Uh, she's pretty cool. I'm trying to think of some other guy. Oh, oh, cool. Uh, he was a token villain in uh, uh, The Last Stand. But actually, now that I'm thinking about it, if you want another character, just because like, a, here's a cool guy. Jamie Madrox, uh, multiple man, is really cool. Um, and he is a detective as well. He runs X Factor Investigations, which was a UK based crime based uh, book that ran for many years. Um, and he's just uh, I would need to do more research on his exact personality. You can maybe look into that. Um, but giving you the clues of he can multiply himself and he's a um, freaking detective and ran his own team like he's got his own. He's got he's he's not just a stock villain is my point. So more of the antagonist that might get in the way maybe but he's also perfectly cooperated with them in the past too um he's his own thing i would say that okay like you could potentially you could potentially do like a if anything if you find that you're like i don't know where to use this guy but i really like him you could potentially do an x factor like spinoff where they don't have a major thing but you like make jamie the jamie madrix the main person um and do like him with psylocke and you know, some other people or maybe a character that left the main team can go join him in kind of a guardian's way um, would be an interesting choice to do kind of a spinoff group. Um, he might be an interesting choice to include in a spinoff group is my point. Um, but yeah, that's that's pretty much everybody that I think is like important or cool or relevant to the arcs I'm going to suggest. Uh, I'm a, I'm obligated to ask if you want any Sabretooth or Juggernaut. Oh, fine, but I don't find Sabretooth to be a particularly complex character. He's a fucking, he's just a blood, he, he is bloodthirsty. One of the first things they do in the Krakoan era is when they assemble their government, be like, what do we do with people who are just disgustingly evil? And they banish him. Yeah. Um, and like, they, he, like right now is the first time he's ever getting a redemption arc. Uh, and it's mostly because where he's exiled to has its own little microcosm mission to it. Um, so yeah, he's just, he's, he's pretty one dimensional. Um, Juggernaut, pretty much the same thing. It's like, he is technically, he's stepbrother of Charles Xavier who gets his powers. He's not a mutant. He gets his powers from a gem, uh, that gives him the suit, the power of Sitarak, which we, we have seen Sitarak in Multiverse of Madness. Um, gross. but yeah, so it's, uh, <laughs> what's up? Gross. Yeah. Gross. Uh, yeah. Juggernaut, you can use him. Um, he, he is, he is a little bit stock villainy. I don't, I have never seen a book where Juggernaut was on the team where I gave a shit that he was on the team. Hmm. So, uh, I guess arcs then. Cool. All right. So obviously you have the first class. I have to wonder, there's no, I don't think it's worth doing an origin story. Um, or if you're going to do a TV show, just do flashbacks to like people's home lives is maybe the closest thing. Like it does not feel like an entertaining movie to gather them together to fight Magneto. Um, I don't know how you navigate that. 
But notably, Magneto's first appearance with them was that he was basically trying to do something similar to the end of first class where there were he was trying to get access to a bunch of missiles to use them as a gun to the heads of the world governments um, about mutants. Uh, and that was when he was a kind of a twirly mustachey villain. Um, and they go on a bunch of just like kind of missions and they it's very comic booky to start. They go to places like, uh, you know, the um, Savage Lands, which are a perfectly preserved prehistoric area in the Antarctic. Um, they fight, uh, you know, characters similar to like scrolls and shit. Um, like they're very comic booky to start. And then the Brotherhood is just kind of their foil, like they're masters of evil. They're, um, you know, Legion of Doom. And. So I don't really know how you make that particularly interesting other than really play up who these characters are interpersonally and their world and setting up the world to receive mutants in a certain way. Um, but because like, like I said, there's nothing about those story arcs that's particularly interesting besides the interpersonal dynamics. Um, second class, again, more or less the first class just kind of has a falling out. Like, because they are trauma bonded, they don't, they still have trauma. Uh, and so the second class is really just formed when the only person left is Cyclops, um, where he's like, everybody else just kind of wants to move on with their lives and carry on. And Cyclops is the one who's like, but I'm still in this. And then more or less is a part of that second class and leads them as well. And is the only one who kind of sticks around. Um, that's like, those are the most generic, like, you can kind of do what you want in terms of villains sure um but it also makes sense a little bit to me where like if we're talking about angels arc like you could have the second class face off against apocalypse and it wouldn't be weird like you could have warren become archangel inside with apocalypse and have the second class be fighting him that's not that weird um and there's a bunch of other side characters like sunfire also could become a has become a uh herald of uh horseman of apocalypse um as has, you know, a couple other random ass characters like uh, Caliban, um, who his whole power was detecting where mutants are. And then basically Apocalypse just went, OK, cool, you're buff now. Uh, so like, you know, you can play fast and loose with who the uh, horsemen are, but they do have to be their powers do have to be amplified to represent death, pestilence, war and. Uh, what's the other horsemen of Apocalypse? Death, pestilence, war. Is it famine? Yeah, famine. I um, have no clue. <laughs> anyway, well, like Sunfire becomes famine because then he gets supercharged fire powers and can destroy crops. Um, and like Wolverine is war at one point. Um, and death, like Rogue could be death because death touch, you know, those kinds of things where it's like it, 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 he kind of picks who they're going to be based on what the powers of the original person are. Um so you can have that happen. Um, the the one that you're probably the most familiar with was adapted into X2, which is God Loves, Man Kills, which is essentially the one where Reverend Stryker is the villain and he's been going on TV and he has like literally debates against Charles Xavier about the existence of mutants in a way that it's like when people debate the right wing person um, and it's not going to change anybody's minds. And it basically is a series of hate crimes against the mutants to rile people up um, that Stryker is not taking responsibility for. But then behind the scenes, he's more or less trying to steal Cerebro and hook Charles Xavier up to a machine that essentially mind controls him to use Cerebro to psionically kill all the mutants. That is basically what they did in X2. I've read the story. It's pretty much the same thing, just a little bit more grounded and a little less going on in the background. 
Um, the one that you one that you probably have never heard of is called the Mutant Massacre, which is really the story that why I introduce you to the Morlocks in the first place. Essentially, and you find this out like in a at the end of the arc, um, but like Mister Sinister was experiencing on experimenting on the Morlocks, which made them kind of those des- that destitute population. He was finding desperate mutants with. Uh, like off mutations that weren't that were obviously mutations and experimenting on them. And then they all ended up just dumped in the sewer and essentially a series of antagonists um, in the com in the comics. It's a reformed group of villains who's tasked by the government to hunt them down. So you could just make it the government. You could make it the department of damage control from the Marvel cinematic universe. You could make it, um, you know, a strike team headed up by John Walker um, you can make it really anything you want, but someone is persecuting the Morlocks because they've been discovered underneath New York City. And essentially, it's the arc in which you, the X-Men have to grapple with their own kind of pretty privilege in that way, their own kind of privilege in that uh, in the dichotomy of where the mutants stand um, and try to save the Morlocks from the villains. Uh, and from, you know, so you can you can incorporate Mr. Sinister in here. You can have him pull strings and be revealed later. Um, but more or less, this is the this is the arc where Angel loses his wings. Um, he is crucified by a hate group. Uh, so, like, you can incorporate Striker. There's a world in which you can do God love man. God loves man kills um, alongside the mutant massacre to kind of like ground it a little bit because that's not what they did in X two. But it would certainly like those two themes would complement each other um, in a movie if you wanted to do that. And it's also one of the first times that mutants are really faced like sentinels came before this, but it's one of the first times that mutants really are like cold at any given point where like the, the heat gets turned up so much that they are actively persecuted and a large swath of them are killed. Most of the Morlocks do not survive this story. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Um, House of M and Messiah complex kind of complement each other. House of M was the story where Scarlet Witch, as the daughter of Magneto, um, had a mental breaking point and essentially recreated a world under the manipulation of Magneto uh, to rewrite or the manipulation more so of Quicksilver to rewrite the world to where mutants were the dominant population and that Magneto was essentially the king of the world um, under that. And it was relatively peaceful. And then like people like Spider-Man had to pose as mutants in order to be accepted rather than just be humans with powers. And eventually Wolverine surprise surprise is the one who get, regains his original consciousness from the illusion and then starts accumulating a group of people to go confront magneto to change the world back to the way it was supposed to be um looking back i'm kind of like why though um because like there was not the same kind of oppression for mutants so whatever um and in the end scarlet witch been when being presented with her own illusion that she believes um unravels once more and then says no more mutants and then the mutant population immediately like is called magically um, like kids with wings fall out of the sky. Um, there's one kid who has another, another kid who has a death touch um, kind of the exact opposite of elixir who is like, I can touch my girlfriend now because we don't have powers anymore. And then he kills her. Um, so he, he's like conflicted by the fact he's like, why did my death power not go away when all the powers were whisked away? Um, and then no new mutants are born for like five years. Uh, it literally is like they took a count and they're like, yeah, there's 198 of us. 
198 of us left. And like Jubilee loses her powers during this period. She's kind of the only main roster person who loses her powers. Um, and then short, like through that is between House of M and Messiah Complex is the time when Cyclops kind of pulls the team away from Charles Xavier. Uh, he Charles Xavier kind of fades to the background and he leads the team uh, to San Francisco, does that whole arc. Um, and then basically they find out that a mutant baby has been born. They use Cerebro and they find out that a mutant baby has been born. Um, and essentially Bishop instigates, well, it's not Bishop individually, but that's one way to interpret it. Um, essentially there's a bunch of people interested in the death of this kid. And so, and Cyclops is literally looking at this kid as this is the Messiah. This is the person who is the first sign of mutants coming back. And if we can figure out what's going on with her, then we can figure out what's going on with everyone. And so essentially there's a big war over this kid. Bishop takes the stance of, nope, nope, this kid is going to be the harbinger of the future that I exist in. Um, and so in the final kind of showdown, Cable takes the baby into the future and Bishop chases him. And there's an entire arc that you could potentially do its own little movie or miniseries about Bishop and Cable's relationship to the future while bit while Cable is literally carrying this baby Mandalorian style. Um, that was a very important thing. And then when eventually the kid was older, he came that she comes back um, and her power is uh, power empathy. She can give a boost to everyone around her and gives and uh, accepts their powers. So it's kind of a cool loop in there. And she also takes the last name Summers. Surprise, surprise. Her name's Hope Summers. Um, yeah. So yeah, uh, that's one thing you can play with. Um, I guess we'll talk about Avengers versus X-Men. Um, essentially, the government at the time on the Utopian Island, it's called Utopia in San Francisco, is Cyclops, Emma Frost, Namor, who is a mutant, uh, and Magneto, and like Colossus. And essentially the Phoenix force returns to earth looking for a host and ends up spreading out across all of them. And essentially it corrupts their minds to where they now see their, their ability to make their, you know, make their future their own um, and start making moves to, you know, solidify mutants in kind of a, they're kind of the antagonist way. So the Avengers are called in to fight them. And this is the, the arc in which Scott is so far down the line of, I must protect mutants at any cost that he literally starts draining the Phoenix force from other members of the, uh, you know, the Phoenix force five uh, so that he can become the full Phoenix force in kind of a, like a nod to Jean and secure his future. And he has this showdown with Charles where he's basically like, Charles is like, he, Charles basically gives him a, you better stop this boy speech. And he's like, fuck you. And he makes like salient points about how he's like, fuck you. I was your general. I did your bidding for years. And this is the repayment that you give me. Um, you're worth nothing. He kills Charles Xavier in this. Um, because he's just at the end of his rope and they eventually defeat him. And he's kind of disgraced from that point on um, and actually loses his powers for a little bit um, and has to kind of regain the respect of everybody in the room. So that's a worthwhile thing from the Cyclops end of it. Um, the Phoenix force is, you know, it's kind of one of those big, like who, what if, what would happen if kind of a story. Um, the thing about a few of these other ones that I'm going to present you a, a generic uh, apocalypse storyline is him assembling four horsemen and then becoming an antagonist for the X-Men to go stop him. Not that different than the movie. It could just be done better. 
Um, it can be done from a more grounded point with characters we actually give a shit about because the only person we gave a shit about in terms of that four was Magneto. And even then, that's not really great. And Magneto shouldn't be a horseman. Um, so like you can work with that. That can be kind of a background thing. Honestly, I see it as character development. I see it as if some of these characters are on that borderline of like, am I the villain? Am I believing in this? Apocalypse is a good way to give them an alternative viewpoint that they can then try out. Um, there's just some small notable ones that are, are like kind of footnotes. Um, like I said, Onslaught essentially is Charles Xavier had repressed all of his negative emotions and negative feelings throughout the years um, and had also at this time imprisoned Magneto uh, in a like essentially a coma. But in doing that, like a piece of Magneto breaks off and enters Charles's mind. And essentially that stews in his brain until it corrupts to the point where he's such a powerful telepath that he essentially convinces a reality bender to make a body for Onslaught. Um, and Onslaught more or less is like pulling all the strings to get the X-Men to do what he wants. It's an interesting story. It's an alternative villain to like Apocalypse or some of the people that we've seen. But if you adapted it in a way that felt more appropriate to the team that you have in the, in the movies that you want to make, you do not have to be faithful to it. The Avengers get involved. He like makes the Hulk smart at one point. Um, and the Hulk is like mind controlled by him at some point. Essentially, it's an end to talking about the sins of Professor X. If you want to talk about the sins of Professor X and all the ways that he has like kept things under wraps or repressed Gene or, uh, you know, stop Magneto and the like mental toll that it takes on him to like keep his puppetry happening. It's an interesting way to do that and then have a external force manifest as a ho 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 you this is all your darkness inside manifesting as a physical creature who is about to destroy the world um he has a very particular interest in franklin richards so if in your world the fantastic four are already a family onslaught really wants franklin Franklin, uh wants to essentially absorb franklin richards so that he not only is the greatest telepath ever but is also like a reality bender and can mold reality to as well um so yeah um mutant genesis is just a interesting arc where essentially Magneto has been dead for a bit or presumed dead. And he comes back and basically it's the first time that he just lays the X-Men the fuck out. This is the first time he actually rips, uh, at least I think this is true. Actually the first time that he rips Logan's skeleton from his body, um, and basically kills him. Uh, so this is the Magneto is not fucking around arc. So like that, that is a worthwhile thing where it's like, if you have Magneto go away at any given point, he can come back with a vengeance and kind of show everybody who he is. And shortly after this is like when you get his backstory revealed. So like those things kind of go hand in hand. Um, there's one particular comic. It's like issue 175 of Uncanny X-Men where Cyclops is pitted against the entire team and he is able to single-handedly defeat the entire second generation because he, as the leader, knows how to beat everyone. And I think that's an interesting dynamic to put Cyclops in if you want, where it's like he is so much the leader that he basically Batmans the Justice League of the X-Men. Um, again, option of Rogue as leader. Um, Age of Apocalypse should be in the future permanently. If you want to do Age of Apocalypse where it's flash forward, all these characters have chosen sides and Apocalypse War on Humanity um, like Cyclops becomes a bad guy in that one, as does Logan. And Logan has to kind of 
flip-flop sides back and forth. Um, Gene is dead in this one. Professor X, what the thing that sets off the Age of Apocalypse, like the inciting incident, you know how Days of Future Past in the movie, the inciting incident is killing Trask. The inciting incident for this is that Professor X's son, Legion, who is also a power flipper, um, who has an entire show on FX, um, um, who is not mentally stable, um, essentially goes to kill Magneto and Charles sacrifices himself to save Magneto. And without Charles's influence, the world, the mutants are very easily swayed by Apocalypse. And that's kind of the interesting dynamic that's examined in this truly, like, alternate future like the majority of the comic arc happens in this alternate future with completely different dynamics uh for the characters like essentially it's like what if to the 11th extreme which could be interesting to see but it's why apocalypse is a hard character to manifest in the current realm in the current day because the more interesting thing is what happens when he wins and that's what inspired the massive 90s edgy uh comic exploration and to the point where even when characters go back in the past and fix it, there have been spinoff comics that are like, what happens after they fix it in that universe if the universe remained the same? Like, people are fascinated with that universe because of the ways in which it pits, like, like Scott and Logan become, like, chief lieutenants under him. And not horsemen, but, like, chief lieutenants and have to reconcile with, like, the world that they've created. Uh, so there's that. Um, there's another arc worthwhile that kind of plays up the whole wolverine and and cyclops as a team but a reluctant team um there's an arc called schism and i don't find that the actual details of the arc are as important the details of the arc are hopes the the class of x-men that are born around the same time that hope is um are essentially put in a position where they're the only X-Men able to do a fight. And Logan, as their like main combat instructor, is like, they're not ready, and I don't want to threaten these kids. They're the last ones we have. And Scott is very much in this place of, they're the only ones who can do to, to fight these people. They're being attacked by like the religious zealot group, um, who is also like being funded by an all-human hellfire group. It's complicated. But essentially, it ends with a big showdown between Scott and... Logan, that is, first of all, not about Gene and Scott's not mind controlled. Fuck that movie. Um, not fuck that movie. It's one of the better ones. But fuck that scene. Uh, <laughs> fuck that characteriz- characterization of Cyclops. Uh, but it's an actual like. The reason I'm suggesting this to you is because it is a worthwhile moral clash between Logan and Cyclops. And the interesting thing is that like a lot of the commentary around this arc is that like. Despite Cyclops being the de facto leader and taking everyone away from Charles's dream, something interesting about Logan is that Logan is Charles's most successful story. And that's something worth examining in relationship to every other character, is that the one person who actually believes in Charles the most is Logan. And so when he comes to blows with the other kid who put who Charles put all of his energy into they're they're the two sons of Charles Xavier at the end of the day and so for them to come to blows in that way over the future of the X-Men and Logan being the one the voice of reason being like their children you and I need to handle this is its own interesting dynamic that can probably be incorporated into a larger arc um, and then lastly something that is a complete wild card if you want to use it there was also uh, Charles Xavier's telepathic uh, twin that he did that he uh, destroyed in the womb, 
who didn't get destroyed and then comes back later. And her name's Cassandra Nova. And she's basically just a telepathic villain. Um, it's just fucking wild that he did that. Another option for the whole Charles Xavier is not perfect arc. Um, that's everything I did research on. Congratulations. Woo. So, uh, yeah, I did not expect this to go that, this long. I have my work cut out for me. You really do. What was the one you said goes with House of M? Uh, Messiah Complex. The thing is, I'd be really surprised if you didn't do Mutant Massacre at some point. I know you're a pacifist, but, you know, that's the one where I'm like, that's kind of the clear one. If we're going to, like, ground the mutants in the the dynamics of prejudice that I'm like, sure, you might need a few season. You might need a season or two to work up to it. And but that's the one that I think like pulls the floor out from underneath them and really sets them up as like, this is this is the reality. This is the reality of who we are in this world. We've been trying to fight the good fight. We've been trying to do this. But like there are people that even we haven't been able to save as mutants become more and more, uh, you know, more and more numerous and more and more people know who we are. To me, that is one of the few stories that has not been adapted that is worth talking about. Um, so I'd be really surprised to see if you didn't use that one. Okay. Okay. So break. We will cut back when uh, TJ has his pitch. <laughs>